This show is brought to you by CIUT Studios. Find out how to volunteer, advertise, or donate at CIUT.FM. Trouble so hard. Trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble for God. Don't nobody know my If you are wondering, you are in the right place. You are listening to the Radical Reverend Show. And it's here and very, very live on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, my, ho- my, your host, me, Sherry DeNovo, coming at you from the studios here at University of Toronto. And uh, we're delighted this show to have two experts. The first half of the show is Arash uh, Azizi, a longtime contributor to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, he's coming to us from New York, from New York University. He is the author of The Shadow Commander. And if you've noticed, and perhaps you haven't noticed, that in mainstream media... We've forgotten about Iran. It was front page news, wasn't it, there for a while? I mean, there's a revolution, or there was, or what's happening? So uh, that's why we have uh, Arash on the show, to really inform us about what's going on uh, when mainstream media doesn't quite. Uh, Arash, are you there? I am here, Sherry. It's great to be with you as always. Oh, wonderful. So maybe take us back a little bit. Uh, You know, this is not the first time there have been uprisings uh, against the current government. So give us a little historical background, if you could. Uh, Well, you know, the Islamic Republic was founded in in 1979, of course, uh, after the revolution, and it's it's been around for 40-something years. Um, But if we keep ourselves to the last, um, you know, last little while, let's say last, five or six years, um, the regime has almost faced um, constant revolts. Of course, it faced a lot of protests and revolts. Before that, um, you know, you, uh, in 2009, there was a, a great mass movement. If you remember, you were spoken of solidarity, meeting about it in Toronto yourself. Um, but in the last five years, um, there's been almost a state of constant revolts. So in November 2019, we had a mass movement in which um, something like 1,500 people were killed by the security forces. And finally, um, last year, in 2022, we had the launch of a movement uh, usually identified by its main slogan, a woman, life, freedom, um, a slogan that sort of had its roots in the Kurdish tradition, but now adopted by everybody in Iran. Um, uh, and for two or three months, uh, tens of thousands of people came out all across the country. Um, the, a lot of them were young people, especially young women, who were leading the protests and really all all Iranians and the world by their courage. Um, the protest started after the death of Mahsa Amini. This was a girl who uh, was not wearing um, her uh, hijab, i.e. her veiling um, very well, and like many others, she was beaten up um, and, and finally killed by the security forces. So the protests were really centered against opposition to this compulsory hijab, Iran is the only country in the world which forced half of its population, to, uh, i.e. women, to, to cover their hair um, and to abide by the strict, um, by the, by the strict rule. Um, and a ton, you know, tons of women came out, burning their scarves, um, coming out on the streets. Um, they were joined by um, a lot of uh, you know, other people, of course, men, workers, um, Iranians from all walks of life. And for... Uh, you know, for about three, four months, they really came out almost every day and fought the regime head on. They, and they still come out uh, here and there. But, uh, you know, like any other mass movement, there's there's ups and there's downs. Um, and in the last, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, there's been a bit of a down. But really, 
if you listen to the regime's own uh, sort of thinkers themselves, they're all united in saying that these problems are uh, these problems won't go away so easily, um, and that they're very real problems, um, and, and they continue to exist. Iran- Iranians really have they're fighting against uh, the tyranny, of course, the one-man dictatorship of of Ayatollah Khamenei and the supreme leader, um, and they're fighting against. Uh, really bad economic conditions that has been enforced on them effectively by the policies of the regime, um, which have resulted in international sanctions and isolation of the country's economy. So really, there's an all-out revolt against uh, the, against the status quo in Iran um, and that uh, you know that we saw in the revolutionary movement last year, and then and then it uh, and, and it continues. The discontent continues, and uh, it's just a matter of time till it erupts again. Uh, speaking here to Arash Azizi from New York University from New York, and uh, he is the author of The Shadow Commander. Highly recommend that book if you want to get a sense of the history of of Iran. Um, Arash, we heard, of course, that there were thousands arrested. Then the one little snippet of news that did get through was that the regime had let uh, 2,000 go, I think, was the figure that was, was in our press here in Canada. Uh, what is what is happening with that? Those who were arrested, uh, many people feared for them and feared even for their lives. Yeah, so they, I mean, they arrested so many. They arrested, um, the numbers differ, but something like 8,000, even more. Uh, you know, I knew a, a couple of uh, friends and family members who were arrested. Um, they arrested so many, there was no way to keep all these people in prison. And so they released many on bail, and then finally they did, when things were a bit down, they did uh, they did a bit of amnesty, for, so they sort of amnestied a few thousand people. But this was, uh, you know, they had already picked up pretty much, you know, everyone who was active, you know, student activists, uh, everyone who could have anything to do with the movement, and a lot of people that they would pick up on the street during the, uh, during the movement, and of course they killed hundreds, um, you know, something like five or six hundred people at least were killed in this movement. So, um, yes, they did amnesty some, and then they did release some on bail. Um, but the real, the general situation remains as it was. They haven't given any concessions. Um, and, you know, they haven't really met any of the people's demands. And, and a lot of them, they frankly cannot, um, because it is very clear that what people want is an end to the Islamic Republic, um, is an end to Khamenei um, as dictator. And, uh, you know, they won't, uh, uh, you know, the movement, it, it's very hard. I mean, of course, if they give very uh, considerable concessions, you can you can see they will placate the movement somehow, but they haven't even given any kind of concessions whatsoever. So hence the, hence the continuation of people's, uh, people's movement. So many questions. Uh, first and, and foremost, uh, of course, is why do you think that? I mean, this was the darling of the main of mainstream media. We we got coverage not only of what was happening inside Iran, but we got coverage of all the huge demonstrations. I'm sure there were some in New York. There were huge ones in Toronto as well, and around the world in support of those who were in the streets in Iran. And and we remember uh, particularly moving uh, pictures of you know young girls, you know. Um, teenagers, some even younger, who were out in the streets, and some who were getting arrested, children. Uh, so, what? Why the silence now, mainstream media? I mean, you know, um, the protests have gone down a little, and it, this is a problem with news, right? Uh, news media can usually only um, work on something when it's in very much in your eye and it's happening. 
right? Um, that's why they usually miss things uh, beforehand. Um, you know, so they, I think a, a better news approach is to really look at um, look at a society and all and all times and uh, see things that are developing that are perhaps um, you, you know um, they can be underappreciated, like because attention in society and and they all go on in Iran. Um, but the other thing is, I think you know there has been so many. Uh, movements and sort of revolting around the last few years. So I think uh, even actually this time around, I think a lot of media were covering it less than let's say 2009 even, um, because I think there is a bit of uh, fatigue perhaps there. Like uh, uh, you know they like oh, okay there's another movement it's not clear you know where it will lead, um, but it's also a job of us Iranians to try to um, to try to keep it in the news. Um, and of course the realities of and mass movements and trade movements is that um, in the last 10 years around the world, there have been tons of uh, movements. And uh, a lot of times they have not been able to reach their goals. And I think in Iran as well, you know, we are having a lot of conversation about a strategy, about you know, unity, about how can we put our different aside to come together to be able to really confront this regime and bring it down. And, uh, you know, when we do that, um, when... You know that that will also reflect better um, in media. I.e., people will see that there is a real chance of um, overthrowing the Iranian regime. Of course, overthrow of the Islamic Republic, when it comes to be, it will be of truly world historical importance because of the role the Iranian regime plays in the region, because of the role it plays around the world. So I have no doubt that the revolution that started last year in Iran, um, when it's ultimately victorious, um, it it can literally uh, change the world. Let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, the, the fact that there have been, it seems, from our side of the the ocean, so many uprisings there, and and somehow just doesn't quite get the mark. And you yourself have just said they've made no concessions. Uh, so what's missing? What's missing to 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 take down this regime? Well, you know, to, the most important thing that's missing is a um, a better unity among. Uh, opposition forces, because what you need and what you don't have, but it's sorely lacking in Iran, as it lacks, by the way, um, in Arab countries during Arab Spring, is a alternative, right? It's not enough to say you hate this regime. You're going to have to have people who are ready to come to power and build an alternative. It's as simple as that. Unfortunately, the biggest miseducation that I think we've received in Iran and in other countries, you know, again in the last 10 years or so, is that Oh, maybe political parties and mass organizations are for the past. Uh, you know, maybe we can do it by hashtag. Uh, maybe if, if people just show enough moral outrage, you know, on social media, things will change. Unfortunately, they won't. This is a lesson that is learned time and time again. You need a, a leadership, right? Um, you need organization. And in case of Iran, it's very clear that first we need a unified leadership organization. Now we've taken some unprecedented steps towards that, by the way. So there are you know, the opposition forces are trying to get their things together and um, are more unified and more serious than they've ever been. So that's good news. Um, but if they had done this, you know, five years ago, we, you know, we might have been able to end the regime already. Um, so there is that. Enough. Then, of course, it's a question of tactics. Demonstrations uh, are very heroic acts in which people die, but they will not bring down uh, the regime. They never have. Uh, what you need, of course, is a general strike. We need a strike action by 
Uh, and this is, by the way, by no way, this is the leftist talking point at this point. I think if you talk to anyone who is interested in overturning the regime, they acknowledge that the way to um, do things um, is a general strike. You can see, by the way, that you know the power of the working class and the power of the organized strike action. If, you know, you only need to look at Israel. Of course, conditions are very different. But within 24 hours, um, you know, when he started doing the trade unions there came out in Israel, in less than 24 hours, in fact, they paralyzed the entire country and and they they forced an immediate uh, sort of backtracking by by the government there. Um, it just goes to show. So in Iran, we need the same thing. We need the unified. Um, uh, you know, we need a unified leadership, and we need an, a general strike. We need a strike, a strike activity that can really sort of stop, stop things, parallel society, and and pose the question of power. And the two are linked, of course, because people, you know, people cannot go on a strike unless they have a, a very clear goal. No, not on a general strike unless they have a clear goal. And some in the opposition have advocated a strike fund, which were used in. In Poland, for example, before in the in the 1990s, um, in late 1980s, and, uh, late 1980s, you know, with the solidarity movement there, these are ways to get money to the Iranian workers so that they can go on a strike, right? So they can have a strike fund without having immediate economic worries. Um, but yeah, these two questions, I think, um, are clearly the key. And I hope that I hope that the frustrations that come out of um, you know, we not having achieved this goal and this regime having stayed in power for so long can help people find the strategy. I should, by the way, share, you know, I should add, you know, when I'm talking about this regime, the kind of consensus that it's a bad regime and it needs to go is unbelievable. Um, it's, it's so widely shared. It can, in fact, you can say the most common answer for people who don't share this consensus is that they agree that the regime is bad and must go, um, but they're just not sure how to replace it which goes back to the point. Um, so it, by, at, at this point, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're religious or not, whether you're left-wing or right-wing. Basically, the regime is a record ball that has failed on any measure. You know, you name it, these guys have failed. Um, and they really have turned a country um, as uh, prosperous and as strong as Iran um, into the... Uh, into this, that miserable state that it is in today, I and mean, it, it pains the hearts of Iranians. Who, you know, as we know, Iranians are the patriotic people. We really love our country, and it, it pains us to see it in this way. Speaking uh, to Arash Azizi here on the Radical Reverend Show, and we're speaking, of course, about that which is not spoken about in the mainstream media, and that is what is going on in Iran right now. It was the subject of conversation throughout the world for a while there, uh, and then seems to just have petered out. So, um, so Arash, in terms of the leadership of the opposition, who are we looking at? I mean, what, what's your bet on who can really galvanize this? Who, what's, where's the replacement, do you think? Where does it reside? So, so I think the, the most important fact is we have to recognize that it won't be one person and one organization. We don't have anyone who has achieved that kind of measure. Um, the other thing we have to recognize is that we need to come together. The thing in politics, right, when we say people come together, you know, you cannot, um, you have to work with the actually existing people and their actually existing figures that they look up to. So you cannot, um, you, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, I don't like this person, I don't like that person, I don't like their position on this, I don't like their position on that. But the whole point of unity is that you unite on one thing. And, and the one thing for us now, the consensus, the good news is we have a consensus. The consensus is we need to get rid of the Islamic Republic and that we need a democratic, secular system. 
pretty much all major forces in Iranian society agree on this, that they have been in a democratic system and that that system needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be secular. Um, by which I mean, you know, it basically means that we need to, you know, democracy is secular by its nature because people need to elect their own representatives and make their own laws um, as opposed to what is enforced on them now by, uh, by a bunch of clerics. A lot of devout Muslims, by the way, also want a secular system and, and are against regime because uh, this regime has really, um, in many ways, um, destroyed Islam because it has made Islam into an ideology of a state. Um, and a lot of devout people uh, in Iran are very unhappy about that. And they don't want their faith to be used uh, by the government in this way. Now, so if you look at the Iranian opposition scene, um, you know, Reza Pahlavi, who is the former uh, crown prince, was, you know, he has, he's one of those who has gathered some support. Um, he, of course, sort of constantly advocates for democracy in Iran. He says he doesn't want to restore the monarchy. Um, then there are uh, many organizations like Left Party of Iran that I support myself um, and um, other Republican organizations. They've recently, just in the last couple of days, uh, launched a new organization called Hamgami. Um, and Pahlavi has also joined some others in forming the new sort of coalition called, called the Mahsa Coalition, named after Mahsa Amini, and they put up a charter. This includes, by the way, uh, Abdullah Mohtadi, who used to be a, a sort of Secretary General of a number of left-wing organizations in Iran. He is now the leader of Komala, of the Komala Party of Iranian Kurdistan. Um, Masih Halinejar, the very well-known feminist activist. Um, Hamid Esmaidiun, who is Iranian-Canadian. So uh, some viewers might know him as, as, you know, he was a person, he lost his uh, wife and daughter in the Iranian, in the, in the Tehran Kiev Ukrainian PS752 crash. And he's become a well-known advocate in Iran. Um, so, as you see, these people have many differences, but they put it all uh, aside to come together. Um, and so, these, these are just two examples, Hangani and the, um, and, and the Mahsa coalition, um, of people who have really put their differences aside in an unprecedented way um, to come together. Because we recognize that, you know, we're going to have differences in the democratic Iran, just like you have many differences, you know, in democratic Canada. But you... And solve them uh, in a parliament by elections, and that's what we want for the future of Iran. But to get there, um, the important thing is to put differences aside and, and come together. And as I said, we've seen that in an unprecedented way. Um, there's also, I should also add that um, civil society organizations in Iran, including trade unions, they put out a charter of themselves um, with, with a lot of demands of what they want to see in the future of Iran. Um, so these are all very hopeful acts that shows... Um, Shows people are finding, people are finding, uh, you know, sort of formulating their demands, putting the differences aside and coming together. Do you see a general strike on the horizon? Do you see that coming together in some kind of unified way with possibly a name attached? Do you see that happening in the next short while? You know, what, 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 is, what is definitely a fact is that everybody agrees that this is what needs to happen, right? Um, in fact, the two words that have been used a lot by um, proponents of the movement now are sort of etesab, which means a strike, and etelaf, which means a coalition. And by coalition, they really mean, you know, leaders coming together and putting together, putting together a coalition. So the fact that it's sort of on the agenda uh, means a lot. But, it, it, you know, in the short while, no, I don't think it can happen in the short while because it does take a lot. And I think um, the problem is, if I'm honest with you, um, the task of confronting this regime and bringing it down is really uh, monumental. 
And while the Iranian people have time and time again sacrificed their lives, came out and showed that they're ready to pay the price to do this, on the political side, we haven't had, we haven't done even 5 or 10% of what is necessary for that to happen. These efforts that I said are good, they're all sort of in a good beginning, but they're, they're not, they're nowhere near where it takes. And people can't, you know, general strike in Iran uh, would be a very uh, ma- massive undertaking. So I don't think it can come, so, uh, you know, until we have a better, um, until we have a better uh, preparation and political leadership for it. Um, and that's, that's the task at hand. Uh, but they haven't, the, the opposition leadership has not done 5 or 10% of what is necessary uh, to get that, unfortunately. Well, here's hoping that it does. And Arash, this is also personal for you. I remember uh, when you were still on this side of the of the border in Canada and your father was arrested at one point, um, and you've said that people that you know have been arrested. Talk about the personal the personal aspect of this for you. Definitely. You know, I think, Sherry, you and I met in 2009. I was, it was, you know, a few months since I had left Iran at that point, and I had come to Canada, um, and then we had the great movement of 2009. Um, and many of us, including me, I mean, I remember I wrote an article for the Varsity, you know, the Toronto newspaper, which is what's called sort of beginning of the end for the Islamic Republic. And we were really hoping that, and that can happen. Um, I haven't been able to do, go back to my country uh, since then. My father did, and he was arrested and sentenced to eight years in prison. Thankfully, he was able to come out after a couple of months, sorry, after a couple of years. Um, and he's, he's back in Toronto now. Um, but... For many Iranians, for tens of thousands of Iranians, and including, you know, the few, I think there's like something like 400,000 Iranians in Canada. Um, this is such a tragedy because, A, we cannot go back to our country. You know, my grandfather passed away and I couldn't even be there on his uh, bedside. I couldn't be there for his funeral. Um, and uh, I haven't been back to Iran since, since 2008. Um so that's the personal aspect that we cannot go. But also, more importantly, um, we are seeing the country that we love so much, um, you know, destroyed. It's, it's something to say, like, many countries are not democratic or they have problems, but this is something more. This is the fact that it really feels like a small group has taken this country hostage and acts on it like an occupying army. Um, they really don't represent the Iranians in any shape or form. Um, so that's, that's, it's a very sad fact. You know, just now we had the Nowruz holidays, Persian New Year, Iranian New Year holidays. Uh, and you can see how millions of Iranians in Iran and around the world celebrate these days um, and how much attachment we have to our national culture. Um, it's a great asset for any country to have so many people who will do things for it because they love their country. Um, you know, Iranians really always ask what can they do for their country before what the country can do for them. Um, so you can just imagine what will happen if this potential is put in the service of a, of a nation. We can be a um, successful, prosperous, more equal, more kind um, um, our nation. We can, you know, we can really get there. Um, if only these energies of Iranian people can be put in the service you know, of the country we love. Um, and unfortunately, that is the stop. So that is, uh, it's a very sad thing um, to have to live through. Um, but I have, you know, I'm optimistic and I have no doubt that myself and others will be able to return um, to Iran that uh, that will be free. There is, uh, 
there is no, um, I have no doubt that this will, uh, you know, that, that this will happen. I have no doubt about it because the, the tenacity and the resilience of the Iranian people has um, time and time again proved that, um, that is able to overcome uh, tyranny. And I'm sure this will be the case once more. Uh, speaking to Arash Azizi, uh, who is speaking to us from New York, New York University, uh, author of The Shadow Commander. And we just have a few minutes left. Arash, tell us about the book again. Wonderful book. Uh, it really gives an insight into a bit of the history in, in an engaging way. So tell us about that. Why people should go out and buy it. Go out and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. I'll, I'll tell you a bit about that book. And also, I have a new book that is coming Ooh, out. Exciting. So, yes, please. Definitely. So, um, so the Shadow Commander is um, it's basically the story of the Iranian regime's interventions in the region and how, um, you know, what it was doing in the Arab world and what, you know, how he was confronting the United States. It is a it's sort of a biography of Hassan Soleimani, this Iranian general that had an important role there. And I think the book would be interest of those who want to figure out the configuration of the Middle East. The Middle East looks like a very sort of complicated puzzle with so many pieces, with, you know, ever-changing sides. But in this book, through the story of, of one guy's life, um, I've tried to tell the story so that anyone with a bit of interest who doesn't have a background can, you know, pick it up and sort of understand, you know, why are Iran and Saudi like this? You know, what is Iran? You know, why does Iran hate Israel so much? Um, you know, what's happening between in, in Syria or Lebanon? And so it's, it's really a look of Iran and the Arab world in the last 40 years. Um, the story of Iranian regime's uh, presence in the Arab world in the last 40 years. Um, so it's called Shadow Commander. And the new book is called Iran's New Revolution, Woman, Life, Freedom. So as the title is quite telling, um, you know, I, I'm writing this book, um, which is now available for uh, pre-order, but it will be, uh, be out in October or November, putting the final touches on it now. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I wrote this book because um, I want to answer the question of why are Iranians revolting? Why do they come up time and time again to risk their life to fight against this regime? What do they want? I was trying to say, what do they want? So, you know, the book goes into different social movements in Iran in the past little while. Um, you know, I, I talk about uh, the opposition to compulsory hijab. I talk about the strong feminism in Iran that has really been an inspiration to myself um, from, you know, from my teen years when I was an activist. That's a very strong feminist movement that is really underappreciated really not known anywhere. Um, especially in the years, let's say, 1997 to 2009, this feminist movement engaged tens of thousands of people in Iran, uh, brought ordinary women from all over Iran into political activity, and they fought for simple things like better laws for protection against uh, violence against women, uh, better laws you know, against child marriage, uh, better divorce rights, things like that. Two bigger questions like women's political participation, and for fighting the undemocratic structures of the regime as a whole. So the book really goes into showing these different social movements to show what was behind the movement that came in 2022. So again, the name is Iran's New Revolution, Women Like Freedom, and I hope that it gives a, um, I hope that it answers the question of what do Iranians want, uh, and you know, what, have they, what have they been fighting for? Uh, and I hope that, uh, you know, before long, this fight can finally come to fruition so Iranians can get rid of this regime and uh, take back to our country. Uh, that's exactly how I see it. We're fighting to take back a country that we all uh, love so much. 
Uh, speaking to Arash Azizi, uh, author, as you just heard, of uh, Shadow Commander in the new book. Um, so uh, do buy both. And final question, Arash, uh, does this, I mean, I know when Shadow Commander came out, you got lots of flack um, <laughs> because uh, it was controversial. Tell us about that. Or do you feel safe, even though you're, you're across an ocean? Do you feel safe? Well, my friend Masih Alinejad uh, was going to be, the Iranian regime tried to kill her twice in, in New York. Um, first, they tried to kidnap her and put her on a speedboat to Venezuela and, and get her to Iran. Um, and then they hired someone to kill her. By the way, when I say hired, these are people who are now already charged and are going through the courts in New York. So it's not some conspiracy. Um, um, but, I mean, you know, I'm, you know uh, there are people who are risking their life much more important than me every day. But I think just, you know, aside from that, um, you know, Iranians really, especially inside Iran, take all risks. I was talking to a family member who was in prison during the movement, um, and she was, you know, thankfully released later. And, you know, what can I say? We are all inspired and in awe of how they can uh, put their life on the line um, to to, uh, to fight for what they believe in. So all that we do here um, is basically a bit inspired uh, by them. But um, as I said, you know, when it comes to Iran, there's always a lot of controversy. Um, it's sometimes more difficult to understand what's going on, which I hope, you know, these books and articles that those of us right here, um, can be, uh, can help that because people around the world should know that, um, there is, this is one of those moments where it's important to stand on the right side of history. Um, and the fight of, um, courageous women in Iran against this, this regime and the fight for self-determination and, and freedom, um, has never been clearer. Uh, it's, it's one of the most clear battles that you can have. So I hope that people uh, uh, see that and get inspired by it like we do and uh, stand on the right side of history there. We hope so, too. Uh, you've been listening to The Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much, Arash. And uh, I, I hope that we have an interview again in the not-too-distant future where we talk about how the regime has fallen. <laughs> I would love that, Kerry. I would love that. Thank you very much. Take care. We're going to have an standing invitation to Iran when that happens. Uh, uh, yeah, and I will be on the first plane out. <laughs> so listen, take care, and we look forward to your next book. We're going to take a, a brief a break here uh, on the Radical Reverend Show, and we will be back with another guest. We're going to talk about gig workers, gig drivers, and the fight to unionize. Colors that you fly Love just one nation And the whole world we divide You won't say you're sorry There is no other choice God bless the people now
And we are back here at the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, just a thank you to our wonderful techs on the other side of the glass. Uh, and speaking of workers of the world, uh, we are very delighted to have on uh, Erla. Uh, Erla, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Oh, thank you, Sherry. <laughs> Uh, and I, I have to tell the story of our meeting. So I clambered into a car, won't, won't tell you what company. Uh, and, uh, and there was a woman driver, which I noted, because that's unusual. And we started talking and it turned out she was this just kick ass or union organizer named Erla. And so I'm so delighted to have you on the show. I said, you have to come on the show and talk about first of all, tell us about Gig Workers International. Um, well, just a little introduction about me, and may I, you know, talk a little bit about what, what's been going on in Toronto? Please. Okay. So I've been a rideshare driver for almost eight years in the city of Toronto, and I advocate for drivers. And I've driven for five different rideshare companies so far. Um, the I'm, I'm going to speak primarily about rideshare drivers Uh the landscape has changed over the years since regulation in 2015, and there's no control over how many drivers are being licensed to drive in the city of Toronto. And at the high point, there was over 90,000 drivers for rideshare companies as compared to approximately 7,500 taxis. Currently, we're nearing 50,000 drivers in the city, and increasing numbers are driving full-time as we all struggle with the economic situation. 
Um, this does not help Toronto meet its climate goals, nor does it align with Toronto's line about creating good-paying jobs for its residents. It's actually more like a cash cow for the city as they receive huge amounts of money for licensing and regulatory fees. Over a year, a rideshare driver pays more in regulatory fees than a taxi driver for their license. While having so many drivers decreases the wait times for riders, at one point it was easier and faster to get a rideshare vehicle than to get an ambulance. The logistics of getting a rideshare vehicle so fast is making drivers that sit or drive around burning gas, sometimes for hours, unpaid. But the rideshare companies will tell you that drivers want this. Uh, recently, an article was published in the Globe and Mail by Tom Slee with Rideshare TO, which is an advocacy group, uh, and he pulled numbers from an FOI from Stats Can and Canada Revenue that rideshare drivers were making less than eight dollars an hour average after operating costs. That's so shocking. Can I just interrupt there? Eight dollars mm-hmm. an hour after operating costs for rideshare drivers, because I don't think Torontonians and for that matter, other Canadians are aware of this. I, because I, and I, and I was speaking to you in, in the car and said, well, I remember a, a, a Toronto Life article, you know, a few years back, uh, t- uh, it highlighted some, uh, some rideshare drivers who were all waxing eloquent about how much money they were making. But, but you, you've said you can't, you just can't make a living with that number of drivers on the road. That makes sense. What, like 50,000? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, if the fleet size was controlled, oh, my gosh, my building has a fire alarm. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> this is a very so live sorry. radio. It's I very had live no radio. idea. <laughs> anyway, you were, we were talking about $8 an hour rideshare drivers. So continue, yes. please. And the numbers being the problem. I'm one of the uh, problems. I, Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, let me try and see if I can find a place to hide where it's quieter. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> what wonderful timing. <laughs> oh. All right. Um, so yeah, those numbers were pulled from StatsCan and Canada Revenue. Most of those workers are newcomers and other equity-seeking groups who cannot find employment or are unemployed, underemployed and are going into debt to do this work. It is relatively easy to onboard, and they're fed a line that they can make money easily. Now, the biggest line that is communicated by a lot of these companies is that the workers all want flexibility. And while that may be true, uh, more importantly, we want money. Flexibility over money? People get into this work to cover the gap for job loss, or because they can't find work. More and more drivers are having conversation around organizing. Some, like Gig Workers United, which is a community uh, organization, uh, a union of workers, they've been organizing delivery workers for years. Rideshare drivers are harder to organize. Some are trying to organize via social media, and some want to protest, while others just want to do writing campaigns. What drivers do need is unity, and that is a challenge. We had uh, UFCW do an about-face and enter into an agreement with Uber about a year ago to support them in their quest to guarantee that workers never have any labor rights or protections, and the Ontario government seems to be giving them much of what they proposed to them. 
So sorry, back, even- back, back that up a bit. Uh, so UFCW uh, represented Uber drivers, and then ex- exactly what happened? Well, UFCW was um, originally backing uh, the Uber black drivers who were trying to unionize. Fast forward, um, that, you know, all fell apart. They weren't able to get certified, and UFCW entered into an agreement with Uber. Um, Uber um, says that the agreement is to, to help drivers with, you know, things like deactivation, uh, but more importantly, um, UFCW is supporting Uber's push uh, to change labor law and deny workers any labor rights or protections. The that's government shocking. Is going along with it. I mean, that's just shocking. Um, it is. So, so now you're with Gig Workers International, and and speaking Gig Workers here, United. Gig Workers United. Thank you. Um, and speaking here to Erla, uh, Erla is a rideshare driver, has been for many companies for many years, and we're talking about the difficulties on the road. Just to recap a little, if uh, you're tuning in, or uh, if if. Uh, uh, you got dismayed by the sound of the fire alarm. I love, gotta love live radio. Um, but, uh, but so there's way too many drivers on the road. Mm-hmm. They're making less than minimum wage, many of them. And, uh, from experience, they can be at your door in a minute or two often. And that, that shows that, I think, Erla, that they're clearly just driving around burning gas and they're way too close to you in a sense. Um, uh, and UFCW, big union, um, has is is in league with an employer uh, talking about labor laws. That's shocking. That's absolutely yeah. shocking. So what what is needed from your point of view? You're on the ground. You're a rideshare driver. What needs to happen next? Uh, well, you know, I don't know what the solution is. What I do know is that when workers come together, and their voices are raised, and allies support, uh, you know, workers in raising voices. Conversations happen at all levels of government. Um, You know, it gives hope that things may change in the future. And you've been, I mean, you've really put yourself on the line, too. You had talked about being deactivated. And by the way, what that means is you're just taken off the road, right? You're taken off the roster when... Uh, denied access to the app with no mm-hmm. notice. It's just all of a sudden out of the blue. And in fact, that kind of thing is actually against the uh, legislation that was passed last year, uh, Bill 88, the Working for Workers, um, Gig Workers Act, um, was signed into law in April of 2022. Uh, it is not being enforced. It is the, the companies, the gig companies are not in compliance and the word is that, oh, there is no regulatory framework yet, but it's law, and nobody is complying, and the government isn't doing anything to enforce. And so, you know, the activations with no notice are still happening. There is no transparency around pay. Um, there, Which, there, can there, I interrupt you just for a second? Mm-hmm. That was shocking to me because, of course, if you're getting an Uber or Lyft ride, you're seeing something on your phone, presumably, you know, that tells you how much the ride's going to cost you. No. Uh, but no. you, but uh, we do as consumers, like as yeah. riders, but you don't. And that do was not. what was shocking to me. So you don't know how much the company is charging. Correct. Correct. Uh, they took that away from us years ago. 
And the, the, the strange thing is that when we think we're being underpaid and we try to have a review of the fare, uh, we're often told, more often than not, told that it was an upfront fare that we agreed to. Unfortunately, we were not provided the upfront fare. Um, and so how can we agree and how do we even know that it's an upfront fare ride? We're not given that information to make a decision. And our agreements even say they were paid for time and distance, but when we ask for reviews because the fares are low, um, they deny. Um, so how can you possibly know what you're making a day if you don't can't. know what you're making a day? <laughs> we can't. You can swing wildly from $30 for six or eight hours work to, you know, 150 or $200, and that's before cost. Which is, of course, rising all the time with the cost of gas and maintenance of your vehicle. And the vehicles have to be clean and blah, 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 right? Absolutely. And uh, one of the interesting things is you you require masking in your vehicle and uh, you wear a mask yourself. Uh, I I don't require masking, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I do wear a mask myself. Some people are more vulnerable than others. And frankly, even if I, I was to catch a cold, or the flu, I would have downtime and nobody pays my rent. So yeah, yeah. I continue to wear a mask well, and so thank that I can you. continue to work. Of course, and thank you for that. I'm speaking to Erla now. Erla is a rideshare driver, has been for many, many years, um, and just happened to get into her car as one of those, uh, you know, blessed moments um, and hear her story. And I think it's a story that everybody needs to know because so many of us do take rideshare vehicles. So, um, you know, talk... First of all, just to recap again, um, you don't know how much uh, the company is charging, so you have no idea what your fair share is. There's way too many of you, 50,000-plus drivers, so that getting getting enough uh, business to keep yourself solvent is difficult. Uh, you're responsible for all the upkeep. And um, and one of the, the things that we were talking about earlier when I was in your car was um, a funeral that I did for a young man. Um, and uh, and this was a kind of an egregious error for, that one of the drivers made that ended up in the in, the, in a death. Uh, his mother, a real activist, uh, has has been you know at the city level and other levels of government really fighting for uh, more regulation. And you've been part of that fight. So maybe talk about that a little bit too. Oh yeah, there there was a you know a number of people fighting for um, training actually, um, and you know training was developed um, after. Uh, a number of years fighting for it. Um, we, a number of advocacy groups and people in the industry also fought uh, to have the city stop licensing new drivers until the training was given to these drivers, and that did happen. Uh, training has, uh, you know, is an important thing, um, but unfortunately it falls short in that it's it's mostly about customer service and the AODA and human rights um, has nothing to do with safety on the road. Um, there is no road test. Many people wanted in-car uh, driving testing uh, to ensure that you know drivers were making safe decisions while driving passengers. I personally agree with it, and I have actually taken training and. Uh, in car testing when I took Centennial College's taxi training years ago. 
and uh, but it's mm-hmm. not part of it. Yeah, so that's not a re- still not a requirement, um, despite all the effort. Uh, speaking to Erla, a rideshare driver, about the state of rideshare drivers in our city and other cities here uh, from Toronto, of course. Um, and and Erla, it, in terms of you know, so training lack, uh, lack of of accountability and transparency from the company. So you also spoke about the difficulty because it's. You know, we we spoke about the Fedora organization, you know, and mm-hmm. um, know someone that was involved in that drive. They finally got certification of their union for Fedora delivery folk. And then, of course, the company said that they couldn't afford to stay in this country anymore and left, um, picked up their toys and went home, basically. So that, that, you know, for all that effort was kind of a sad result. And even that was easier than organizing rideshare drivers, as you were saying to me, because you're so separate and you're so um, on your own. You started a Facebook page, though. Uh, how's that going? Like, tell us about the difficulties and maybe some of the possibilities. Oh, you know what? Organizing rideshare drivers is difficult. Um, we, I mean, we're we're definitely isolated from each other. Um, we, you know, let me let me back up here. It is definitely easier to organize uh, other gig workers, for example, food couriers, because you know if you stand on a corner in downtown Toronto where there's a bunch of restaurants, you can obviously see the couriers arriving and leaving on their e-bikes, bikes, or pulling up in cars to pick things up. They've got their courier bags, things like that. It's it's more difficult with rideshare drivers. And uh, there is no place for us to congregate other than, like, for instance, the airport lot. Um, and so that it, it has definitely been a challenge. And so, social media has been sort of central uh, at the moment to bringing drivers together. But that, you know, that in itself is, is, is also difficult. But there are a number of driver groups that are actively starting to talk more about organizing and or other means of trying to advocate for themselves. I did create a page uh, for drivers who want to come together um, so that it's a safe place for us to talk about organizing and make plans. And there are a number of groups that are talking about things like writing campaigns, but it is a long, slow process. I mean, organizing workers... It doesn't matter what industry; it is a long, slow process. And particularly in yours, uh, what can could riders do to help uh, those who are taking rideshare now, of which there are legion? What What would you say to riders? What can we do to make your job easier and to make your organizing easier so that you get a fair shake? Oh, um, you know what? Gosh, there could be so many ways that riders could help us understand that what. You know, inflated amounts that you may be paying to the rideshare company does not make it into your driver's pockets. In many cases, it's far more than the companies say, for instance, 25%. It's far, uh, the, the, the company take in many, many cases is far more than that, especially with one particular company who only pays drivers by a base rate card. If you find it more difficult to get a ride, it's because drivers don't want to drive during busy times because they will earn more on a competing company. Um, if you uh, support 
workers who are trying to fight for fair compensation lift their voices up. Um, if you are uh, want to share information, such as Gig Workers United, they do have a website for allies to sign up and support um, their fight. Um, Gig Workers United also has other things such as order-in days, but that's not for rideshare drivers. Just, you know, if you can, you know, support workers in their quest to um, receive fair pay and fair treatment, um, just uplift, uplift their voices and support that. And tip well, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> And the tip goes to you, I hope. I mean, do you see uh, that at least? You know what? I can't guarantee that it appears in our pockets 100% of the time. There are many documented cases on social media where drivers have never received the tips that riders have given them. That's, uh, abs- I mean, that's theft, essentially. That's Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and this bill that was passed that's supposed to have some regulations that, that as you said has not been enforced very well um you know again what can what can people out that are not rideshare drivers what can we do to help make sure that that gets regulated can uh, i mean for example if 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 you put a tip um as many people do um is there a way of contacting i mean who do you contact even <laughs> to uh to check that that money got through well, you know, these are apps. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases, you can't speak to a human being or the human beings that you can get, like in our case with Uber support. Um, they're not located in North America. And most of the time, they have no comprehension of what we're talking about. And that's another frustrating thing. Um, so there is no way. The only way you can guarantee that your rider, sorry, your driver actually gets your tip is cash. But you know what? That doesn't mean that I'm asking everybody to tip. We do appreciate that. It's like a little Christmas gift at the end of the drive. But at this point in time, there is no way to guarantee that your driver is actually receiving what you sent. Oh my gosh. It's okay. The, 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 the alarm's coming on again. Uh, it's but we testing. Were, it's oh, the it's fire testing. department it's, testing the alarm. Uh, uh, we were talking to, to Early, who is a rideshare driver on the Radical Reverend Show, if you're listening. And uh, thank you for listening. We're broadcasting from Kitchener to Coburg and Buffalo to Barrie, so large broadcast range. Uh, and in that broadcast range, of course, people are taking rideshares a lot. Uh, so, uh, so maybe can you can you tip in cash? I mean, can you? <laughs> I Absolutely, mean, you can. Okay, cool, cool. So here's here's tip number one: if if you take rideshare, tip in cash. That way, you make sure that the driver gets the money, um, and also uh, make sure that you're speaking to your counselor. There's a Merrill. Uh, you know, race coming up here in the city of Toronto. Make sure that you know where uh, your candidate stands on things like regulation for, for rideshare companies and uh, transparency. Transparency and regulation, of course, too, for training because you want somebody that can pass a road test <laughs> when you get into the back of their car, you know? Um, Erla, what else do we need to do? And by the way, thank you for your bravery in coming forward and speaking about this because we, I know, because you told me um, that uh, the company can be very vindictive, even though we can't talk to a human. 
they uh, they can just take you off the roster of rides that go out, can't they? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one other thing that people can do is to contact their MPP. Um, support the quest to end misclassification of workers. Mm. Um, support... So, excuse me, um, what do you mean by that misclassification of, of workers? How, would, how will that help? Okay, so... There was recently a decision at the OLRB, um, and OLRB basically decided that this courier had worker status, was an employee, mm-hmm. and um, with the Bill 88, the Ontario government did not support that decision by ending misclassification of workers. So we're basically told that we're independent contractors, but we have no rights when it comes to things like negotiating rates, building a clientele, subcontracting our work. So Um, you're not really independent contractors. So we're not. You are employees and should be making at least minimum wage according to labor standards and other safeguards, right? Correct. Okay, correct. But it's all... Mm -hmm. The, the Employment Standards Act leaves it all in our court. We're the one that has to fight that individually when the law can be changed to end that misclassification. Right. So yet another thing. Talk to your MPP. Talk to your potential mayoral candidates. Talk to your city councillors. Um, Rideshare drivers need a better shake and be generous when you're in the car, of course. And here's to finally getting uh, some real union representation that defends your rights, Erla. Thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And uh, um, and I hope we meet again. I hope I'm your, your passenger once again. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I can tell you, you can actually do that by favoriting me. <laughs> oh, can you? See, I don't even know about that. So, Tahoe, yeah, can you... you can favorite your driver and then pre book. Ah, okay. I will remember. And I I would love to. I will favorite. Yeah. So just remember, Erla, there's not too many women drivers, so not hard to find her. Um, Favorite Erla, and and let's keep fighting for decent worker rights for all of you. Thanks so much, Erla, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much, Sherry. It was a pleasure being here. And to the rest of you out there in listener land, uh, do know that we do podcast this show. Uh, it will be up after a few days. It is up on the radio website after this uh, appearance, uh, probably by tomorrow as well. And keep listening because, you know, we don't want to do much. We just want to change the world on this show. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Bye. Ooh, So hard, don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Ooh, Lord, trouble so hard. Don't nobody know.